Let's get political. Political. Let's get political. Political. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. With the upcoming election on the very near horizon, we thought that we'd talk about our favorite political films. Uh, These are films that deal with politics directly or influenced our politics in some way. Say your name and your favorite movie president. My name is Jordan. I don't see how everybody's not choosing Terry Crews' character in Idiocracy, the President (laughs) Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. Uh, My name is Kyle Gibson, uh, a.k.a. Gibby. And my favorite movie president is Bill Pullman character out of Independence Day. This was a strong leader. This is who we want in charge of. If he gives good speech. I wish they had cast Bill Paxton in that role. That would have been a lot better. Yeah. I wish they'd just they'd cast them both and just switched in between them. Okay. Seeing if anybody, no, anybody noticed. Notice. My name is oh. Hudson. I'm going to go with Morgan Freeman, Deep Impact. Morgan Freeman. That's a good movie. It was a good movie, surprisingly. I would probably actually vote for Morgan Freeman. What would be his platform? I mean, depending on which party. I mean, like, I wouldn't vote for, like, Morgan Freeman Nazi party. But that's, if he were, good. you know, running under... You think he'd uh, have a deep impact a deep on the country? <laughs> <laughs> we have to stop that asteroid. <laughs> I don't think that's a line from the movie. <laughs> Thanks. Should have been. It would have made the plot Elliot, much clearer. It's like, oh, what are they trying to do? Oh, okay. My name is Lance, a.k.a. the bad boy of film podcasting. No one K's you that. Everybody is me that. No, I'm about to totally win this because my choice is Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers, Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. I knew you were going to pick that one. Lance wins. I knew you were going to pick it. You didn't know that. I actually Not did a contest. Because I considered it. No. That doesn't really prove that you knew that I was going to pick that. But And so, by the way, this part of the show is still stupid. So, I can't believe anyway. we didn't pick Kevin James. So we reached out on Facebook, facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm for your favorite political movies and got some great responses. Jonah Berkowitz says, I have a major soft spot for Dave, which I don't remember seeing that movie. Did you guys see Dave? I did yeah, see Dave. Everybody kind of liked it. Like it was one of those movies that just everybody was, it was very pleasant. pleasant film. It was kind of a feel good political movie. It was, it was good. Had a great Charles Grodin performance. Thanks, oh, yeah. Jonah. Chris Grind says, Phantom Menace. That's some fan. Fantastic politics. There's these trade federation guys and senators, and I just made myself sad. I have <laughs> so no idea what he's, he's talking being, about. <laughs> he's being sarcastic. Is that how Chris Grind talks? <laughs> yeah. It's a spot on Chris Grind impression. Oh, that, that was class, classic yeah. Chris Grind. <laughs> Mandy Campbell gave us a laundry list of films, including Lincoln, Argo, The Great Dictator, Duck Soup, and The American President. She Thanks. basically just threw up on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mandy, she, that just, she Googled, she Googled yeah. presidential movies and <laughs> just listed them all. Way to cut and paste, Mandy. <laughs> She pulled a Gibby. We asked for one, and she gives six. Jordan, you're going to start us off today with your number three political movie. Go for it. I sure am. And my number three is Primary Colors, Mike Nichols' masterfully made film from 1998, written anonymously, now we know, by Joe Klein, political columnist for Time Magazine, and he uh, he covered the campaign for Newsweek, the Clinton campaign. John Travolta stars as Governor Jack Stanton, a fictional governor with more than just a little resemblance to But not, not really fictional at all. Right. Mm-hmm. He looks like Bill Clinton in his He picture. does look a lot <laughs> really? like Bill Clinton. Really like. Yeah, was I the only one that noticed that? <laughs> he even talks kind of like a him. A little bit. Thing. 
Emma Thompson plays his wife, Susan, who coincidentally has the same haircut as Hillary Clinton. We, the audience, experience all the movie's events through our hesitant hero, Henry Burton, who bears no physical resemblance to George Stephanopoulos whatsoever, but does seem to mirror his role in the Clinton campaign. And Henry is played by the, I think, fantastic Adrian Lester. George Stephanopoulos, of course, as you guys know. Handsome little devil. Oh, okay, cool. He works for ABC. Oh. He, uh, he worked in the Clinton campaign. Anyway. He's also known for being a handsome little devil. <laughs> in this movie, while a far cry from documentary, it does give a glimpse into that world that is usually hidden behind the candidate. Obviously, this movie is a fictionalized story about Bill Clinton's primary campaign in 1992 for the nomination of the Democratic Party. And while being <clears throat> completely fictionalized, it centers around the intensely charming and smooth-talking Stanton, who is constantly hindered by his own bad behavior involving his sexual escapades and infidelities. It also deals with the very uncomfortable sweeping under the rug of statutory rape, which honestly makes this movie a little hard to talk about. This movie is simultaneously hilarious and very moving. I literally spend most of the movie laughing and some of the movie actually crying. It would have been funny if you just stopped after you said this is, makes it hard to talk about. And we just <laughs> moved to that. We just moved to the next movie. About it. So I'm not going to. Yeah. So how accurate is this movie to the events that actually happen? Or is that not the point of it? I don't think the point of it is to be a, like a blow by blow. Maybe there are better terms to use for this movie. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's supposed to be a, a event by event. Um, I think it's more. I think it's more a, a recreation of the characters, not the events necessarily. Although there are several events in this movie that are very much it, mirrored the, real life events. So this movie was set in 1992. Yeah, during the primary. Wonder why they didn't campaign. call it Hypercolors. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Slam dunk. <laughs> You were so excited about that. About, <laughs> you were so excited about that joke when you walked in today. But yeah. wonderful movie, by the way. I went back and watched it, and I forgot how good this was. I saw it once in the '90s. I watched it again last week, and I absolutely loved it. It's a film that's about a very cruel irony, which is that on the one hand, the political system destroys people with flaws, but on the other hand, it creates and attracts people with flaws. And we get to see it through the eyes of an idealist, um, and mm-hmm. the main character, Hank. Is that his name? Henry. Uh, Henry. Unless you know him better than we do. (laughs) I guess you can call him Hank. I call him Hank. (laughs) And and all he wants to know is whether the person he's helping put in office is a good person who's above the mudslinging. And at the end, the conclusion seems to be kind of bleak because he has to compromise and realizes there is no such person. And by the end of this movie, I I couldn't tell if I just watched a hopeful film or a tragic one. Yeah. And and yet I kind of didn't care because it was just so entertaining and well done. For me, this movie leaves me totally emotionally drained. I'm, I'm both happy and devastated, like you were saying. I'm disheartened and hopeful and I'm left with these questions like what sacrifices and allowances do we allow a leader who we think will do good work and can one glaring character flaw ruin a person and the good that they can do in the world I think these are unanswerable questions at least objectively unanswerable and questions that don't seem to be going away anytime soon and it, it that makes me love this movie that I, mm. it ends and I, I have these questions to, to really ponder and it doesn't try to answer them for me which I think it would have been easy for or maybe not easy but I imagine there was some temptation to try to answer that question mm-hmm. but but that would have seemed pretty partisan. Sure. The movie was released just two months after Bill Clinton held a press conference and infamously said about former White House aide Monica Lewinsky, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Can you do it, Lance? I had hot sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) I'm sorry. I misread that. (laughs) I'm sorry. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) Now imagine me biting my lip and putting my thumb up. Before going into my pick, I was surprised by the amount of political movies I saw that I actually liked. 
Political movies? Yeah, political movies. That's this theme, right? Are you surprised that's what this episode's about? I think it's biblical movies. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the wrong thing. That has nothing to do. I mean, maybe they cross over. We're not doing Ben Hurt. You're like, Pharaoh politics. (laughs) (laughs) Political movies. Yeah, my first pick is the 2014 Best Picture nominated film, Selma. This is a story of uh, Martin Luther King organizing a march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965, which is a very important touchstone in the civil rights movement. Uh, It's directed by Anna DuVernay, and David Oiello stars as Martin Luther King. I kind of went into this movie not thinking it would be great, or when I first heard they were making it, I kind of thought it'd be a made-for-TV type film without any sort of flair, just kind of a straight retelling of what happened. But I was surprised when it started getting good reviews, and I went and watched it, and I really loved this movie. It's got great performances all around, and you know, as any movie should do, I actually learned something from watching it. What'd you learn? I learned that life kind of sucked back in the 60s for a big group of people. And what, What I think shocked me even more about this is that, I mean, it was 1965, which wasn't that long ago. One generation older than us. Yeah. I mean, our parents all lived through this. They were alive when this stuff happened, and it's just shocking. I didn't know anything about the uh, the March from Selma and um, so yeah, I never heard to light, which so, is I'm crazy. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I never heard. I'd never heard of that. I, I didn't know if that was you guys' experience. You'd never too. heard of it. I'd never heard of that specific mm-hmm. march. Right. Oh. I knew a lot of marches happened in Selma and Birmingham. I mean, I know that had stuff happen in Alabama. I didn't know about this specific because it wasn't just like they walked down the street right. for a hundred yards. Like right. Right. this was miles. This was more like a pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's great in that way that it brought attention to something that I think wasn't widely widely known. Um, you know, it might have been a sentence in your history book in school or something, but not something you spent a lot of time on. The thing that stuck out to me about this was it kind of hints at um, Martin Luther King's infidelity with his wife a little bit, which is something I wasn't aware of. But it's one of those things that to me is so powerful that you know, no human being is flawless. No human being is perfect that you can be a flawed person and still make a huge difference in the world, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. And, you know, that's kind of a theme that runs through, I mean, really all of history, including the Bible. And I just, I find that idea uh, really powerful that anybody can make a difference in the world. Yeah, I thought, um, I, I I liked this movie. I didn't love it, but it did two things that I thought were important. And one is what you just mentioned. You know, we, we, we are, we're all from Atlanta. We, we, record this in Atlanta and King is something of a, you know, a hometown hero here. I mean, he's a national hero, but especially in Atlanta, he's very revered, but you know, like a lot of American heroes, he's been very sanitized and it's important to understand that he was just a man that he was and and I, and I think his flaws give him, you know, more, more credence and more, um, I, I, it almost make him more worthy of respect well, it's, in a, in a way that's like ironic. It feels like something anybody can live up to. Exactly, exactly. It, it it meant that he wasn't just working in a different plane. He still struggled with the same things we all struggle with. But the the the, the other thing I found fascinating about this movie is what a brilliant strategist he was. And this movie oftentimes feels like a chess match. Mm. And and that part of it was really intriguing to me because you, the, the perception of King is that he would go out, he would stage these rallies, and then over time he just kind of wore the establishment down and they kind of gave in. But there was so much more to it than that. I mean, this was a brilliant man. And the way that he understood politics and, and just the, you know, the social interaction between these two sides and how to leverage. There's a scene when he walks into a hotel and a white man walk, walks up and punches him in the face. And he responds by saying, oh, this place is perfect. He was in complete command of everything he was doing, and, and that aspect of King doesn't get talked about enough. One other thing I noticed about this movie, have you noticed how Hollywood has this stable of like racist-looking white actors that they call on whenever, like, it's like whenever they need like white people to stand on a sidewalk and sneer at people, black people walking down the street, it's like it's the same 10 people, they just pull out of the same bullpen every time. Who love being I love typecast that. in that way. Yeah, yep. yeah. They've always got like their hair slicked back, and they just look really mad and racist-y. Uh, Lance, you're number 
number three? My number three is JFK, Oliver Stone's 1991 film. It follows the investigation of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, into the JFK assassination. Revisiting this movie, um, this is just one of my favorite movies, period. And revisiting it, it kept something kept driving me crazy about it because it was reminding me of another story. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was, and it finally clicked for me. This is basically... Sallow? <laughs> no. It's basically Alice in Wonderland. That's, that's essentially what this story is. Because what you got is you got a protagonist who's thrown into a world that suddenly makes no sense. His name is Alice. <laughs> okay. No Why respect. do you have no respect for my <laughs> incredible Wait, is this, insight? Is this yeah. show called Four Friends Respect Each Other? <laughs> Four Friends Respect Each Other's Opinions on Film. Really rolls off the tongue. Um, but you have a protagonist who's thrown into a world that makes no sense, where institutions that he has always had faith in are suddenly put into question. And he goes on this journey where he meets all these bizarre characters and goes on this just crazy odyssey that seems to get weirder and weirder and weirder. And he goes, and really his goal is to get back home. And, and home in this movie represents you know, an, a more innocent country before things fell apart. The tragedy here being that home no, no longer exists if it did to begin with. There's actually, and it's funny, I, I kicked myself, it took me so long to figure this out because there's actually a line Kevin Costner says. Now we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black and black is white. Where he basically directly you know, references the wow. title of the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. This this movie was made at a time where everything Oliver Stone touched turned to gold, and this was his streak. This is this is remarkable. Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, and then he made this. So this was a filmmaker kind of at the height of his powers. But to me, and Jordan's, I think about to disagree with me. This this to me is his last great film um, that Ooh, he did. Definitely disagree. So I, I'm not trying to brag here. I am something of a JFK assassination expert. If you <laughs> would like to see my credentials, you can look at my 11th grade term paper, which uh, received an A minus. Wow. Thank you, thank you, Miss Richards. What'd you do wrong? Nothing. She just didn't really give A's. So. Mm. Also, shut up. <laughs> it, That's I, what all mediocre students say. Oh, she, she never gives an A+. Plus. Yeah. It's just not a, yeah, I was at the top. This is not a wound Lynch was expecting to open today. Nope, I wasn't. <laughs> was, it a, was it a conspiracy against you? <laughs> There's a um, second grader. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I bring that up because if you're looking for a film that is a factual representation or a historical, a historical document of what happened, this, this, this is it. No. <laughs> this is definitely not it. This this is not a history class. And it's important to point out my favorite movie critic, Roger Ebert, Rebert. who always comes up. <laughs> Rebert talks about how he was scolded heavily by Walter Cronkite for praising this movie. Really? Cronkite's criticism was that this was so off-base factually that it didn't deserve to be praised. And Ebert's response to him was... That's not what movies are supposed to do necessarily. And this was not a movie that was designed to do that. What this movie was trying to do, and this is what Oliver Stone is so good at in all of his films, is that he was trying to capture a mood and a feeling and an emotion of a culture at a specific time. And that's what this movie does so effectively. It really gets the chaos that occurred after this event and what it said about our country. And again, Stone does that so well, and I think it's what makes him one of the great American filmmakers. I don't know what took me so long to watch this movie, because this is right up my alley, but I finally watched it this week, and I love it. There are a lot of aesthetic choices that I don't care for in it. That's because he made every aesthetic choice possible. Every type of film, you know, color correction, everything you could choose, he, he uses in some way. He throws the entire bag of tricks in this movie. Yeah, I think it's because it's so long that they ran out of all like, they kept they running out, out of, of different kinds of film. Like, and the video cameras broke and they, they used them all up. I, I didn't really care for the first hour, but I mm -hmm. 
there's two more you can like. <laughs> there's two yeah. and a half more it's after It's a great that. thing. You don't so like I, one hour, you go to the next one. So I stuck with it. And by the last hour, I was just completely engrossed in it. And it left me... Honestly, if I'd watched this a few weeks before, I probably would have put this movie on my most disturbing list. Oh, yeah? Because I was left completely hopeless, just devastated at the deception. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're very much going down the the rabbit hole with this guy as he comes to terms with the fact that swirling around this idealistic culture he thought he lived in is nightmares and you know really seedy characters and people and movements and it, it is very much about the loss of innocence for for both kevin costner's character and the country as a whole lance was this the first movie that kind of opened your eyes to like conspiracy theories in general and like you kind of got that like yeah well, I, think, I think that's one of the tricks this movie plays on you is it makes you feel super intelligent like yeah. you're the one going behind yeah, the curtain like, oh man, yeah, I'm part of the movement. Figure it out and bring the establishment down. It, it does kind of make you feel like that. Uh, the best, the, the watch documentary that was available on Netflix, and I'm so sorry I cannot remember the name of it right now, but um, makes one of the most compelling cases I've ever heard, which is that the killing was an accident. That one of the Secret Servicemen accidentally shot John F. Kennedy, um, <laughs> and the fr- that Oswald was in fact trying to kill Kennedy, but he didn't succeed. It, and the Secret Serviceman swinging his rifle around, trying to point at the fifth floor of the Texas Book Depository, accidentally shot Kennedy. Wow. It sounds crazy. Accidentally shot him four times? Uh, one time. The third shot was the one that actually hit, was actually did not come from Oswald. Oh, so, you're saying that Oswald got uh, the shots off? He got the shots off. He actually the, hit okay. him, but he would not have succeeded. The one that the, killed the, him. The Secret Serviceman accidentally finished the job for right, him. Right, right. Okay. It sounds insane when you hear the evidence for it. It is remarkably compelling. So, anyway. Yeah. Of course, anything sounds likely in that story at this point. Yeah, true. My number three political film is Thank You for Smoking, 2005 film based on the novel of the same name by Christopher Buckley. Thank You for Smoking is a satire about big tobacco and tells the story of fictional tobacco lobbyist Nick Naylor. Nick is the face you see representing tobacco on TV, claiming it's not as bad as it seems. And a lot of the humor comes from his pro-cigarette arguments. He's good at his job. He claims, Michael Jordan plays ball. Charles Manson kills people. I talk. Everyone has a talent. And claims... You know that guy who can pick up any girl? I'm him on crack. So the movie explores what it means to win. Like, what if you're really great at your job, but what you do is terrible? It follows Nick through a number of stories, both professionally and personally, most notably his relationship with his 12-year-old son from a failed marriage as he attempts to connect and be a good influence while trying to defend what he does for a living. This is director and writer Jason Reitman's debut film and a really impressive one uh, at that. Um, an interesting choice he made is that the movie is about smoking and about smokers, yet the movie features no on-screen smoking. Uh, and after I watched it, I could have sworn that it was filled with smoking. Even the New York Times inaccurately stated in its review, thank you for smoking is rated R for mild violence, discreet sex, and of course, countless cigarettes, which was not correct. <laughs> Way to watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the best movies don't preach. They ask questions like we talked about before. Uh, And this movie asks a lot of great questions about personal responsibility, the role of government, political correctness, and capitalism. Um, But it leaves you to seek the answers out for yourself. I love this movie. It's so much fun. And I I think part of what makes it so much fun is that the whole time you're rooting for this guy that in real life you hate. Yeah, he's terrible. You saw this... in real life, you saw this guy on the news or something, you'd be like, that guy's the worst. Why yeah. is he Why is he doing this? But in this movie, you're just, you love him. Aaron Eckhart plays the main character here. In, in my mind, I like to imagine that he has so much guilt from 
doing what he's done, that he gives up this life, changes his name to Harvey Dent, moves to Gotham City, <laughs> and then, you know, fights for truth and justice after for, that. For until his face right is horribly scarred. Uh, yeah, I like to think of this as a prequel to Dark Knight. That, that makes total sense. Be, yeah. Tiny little detail in this movie that I think that really made me chuckle this time because of a previous podcast we made. Aaron Eckhart's character goes to see Jeff, the Hollywood producer, and they're walking through that fancy building. There is a Zen garden, and there is a man raking that Zen garden, and his name is... Hiroshi. <laughs> what? Uh, really? Yep. He grew up from Testament. <laughs> yeah. Joey, the kid in this movie, the mm-hmm. son, his inspirational speech, I think might be the best inspirational speech I've ever heard in a movie. Why are you hiding from everyone? It has something to do with being generally hated right now. But it's your job to be generally hated. It's more complicated than that, Joey. You're just making it more complicated so that you can feel sorry for yourself. Like you always said, if you want an easy job, go work for the Red Cross. You're a lobbyist. Your job is to be right. And you're the best at what you do. You're the Sultan of Spin. Sultan of Spin? Mom subscribes to Newsweek. Who cares what the Brads of the world think? He's not my dad. You are. I only remember one line from it and it's always cracked me up and it's where Rob Lowe is uh, trying to make reservations at a restaurant and he says the name of the restaurant and he says they only serve food that is white. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it takes on a lot of things like that where it kind of makes fun of all things equally. You know, it's making fun of Hollywood. It's making fun of DC. It's making fun of the tobacco companies and but not, um, but not in a goofy way. Right. No, like, no, no, no. It, it shows a little bit of respect to all of them and a little bit of, you know, mocking them at the same time. So what, in your opinion, was the point of this movie? I think he's really trying to open up the doors for you to figure it out for yourself. On the themes of the movie, Reitman stated, cigarettes are something we know all the answers to. We know they're dangerous. We know they kill. We know how they kill. We understand that they are addictive. I wanted to look into this idea of why we feel the need to tell each other how to live and why we can't take personal responsibility for our own actions when we fall ill from things that we know are dangerous. While it's not anti-smoking, it's very important people don't think this is a pro-smoking movie. It's about freedom of choice. The senator character in this is trying to put skull and crossbones. William H. Macy. Yeah, William H. Macy is trying to put skull and crossbones on all the cigarette packs. And he's like, why would you need to do that? Everybody already knows that they're bad for you. And then he talks about, well, should we put that on cheese? Because cheese causes cholesterol and it's the number one killer or whatever. But it was, a, it was a world that you can explore this idea of personal freedoms. Should we stop people from harming themselves if they're making the choice to do it? And I think it's just an explore, mm, exploration of, of that question. Do you think there's any part of it where, I mean, these people are vilified lobbyists. I mean, 90% of the people in the country are vilified, but I think he does a good job of making them seem human. So I think in a way he may have been trying to say these people are just doing their jobs too. That's that's sort of yeah. a takeaway for me from this movie is, is like, you know, these people aren't actually evil. They're dads and ex-husbands. Yeah, because yeah, other than maybe like pedophiles, lobbyists are among the most hated oh, yeah. people in America. Yeah. All right, Jordan's number two. My number two is The Unknown Known, the 2013 documentary about the professional life of Washington insider Donald Rumsfeld, told through a combination of an interview with director Errol Morris and a selection of his thousands, if not millions, of memos written throughout his career. The film focuses quite a bit around Rumsfeld's role as Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush, leading up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And... If you've never seen an Errol Morris documentary, first of all, I highly recommend that you do. 
Uh, Lance probably does too. Aramorse has a way of creating this incredible intimacy between the audience and the subject. The Unknown Known is nearly two hours of sitting in a featureless room with Rumsfeld while we hear Errol Morris ask questions and interject from time to time, but we never see him. Why were we in Iraq? Except <laughs> <laughs> so, so you need to be nowhere it's close literal. to a mic. <laughs> yeah. Why were we in Iraq? <laughs> that, that's one of those impressions no one's going to get, whether right. it's good or not. Like, I've never heard Errol Morris talk. <laughs> Even though it's this featureless room, there are plenty of other things to look at. We're not just looking at Mr. Secretary the whole time. There's tons of archival footage and photographs and some awesome motion graphics of uh, micro... I guess it's microfilm that they're showing. Microfish. Microfish. Fisk. Microfisk. Aramorse does an incredible job of humanizing Rumsfeld uh, when I seem to remember him being so demonized and made into a villain during the whole lead up to the Iraq war and after. That's not to say that he isn't a villain. Uh, that he isn't a demon. <laughs> or, a, or a demon. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I can't help but actually like Rumsfeld in this film. He just is so like calm and cool and clever and he's full of these quips. And uh, he's, he's funny. It, he seems like a really cool grandfather. Ultimately, it shows a man of undying yet quiet confidence, never wavering in his calm and cool, even when Morris asks him point blank questions and calls him out about certain details. Which is, I think, part of the appeal is just this incredible confidence that this man has. Like, he he just, nothing throws him. The whole movie is kind of centered on this quip that Rumsfeld had when he was asked by a reporter about evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He said, There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns the ones we don't know we don't know and the, the whole movie is full of these things these mm. like they're not one-liners couple liners right that Rumsfeld <laughs> nothing like a good three-liner <laughs> it has one of my favorite movie endings of all time it it's probably you my find out that uh, he's been dead the whole time <laughs> no that would be weird Errol Morris just asks him hey why did you do this and Rumsfeld says and not unkindly he he, he again like he's just kind of smiling and calm and happy he says that is a vicious question I'll be darned if I know. And then it ends. I still don't really understand how this movie got made. I don't understand how Donald Rumsfeld was like, yeah, mm-hmm. Errol, I'll totally sit down and <laughs> mm-hmm. talk for, mm-hmm. I mean, how much footage do they shoot for this? Like an unbelievable Days, amount of hours, yeah. I'm sure. And he's just telling his story. And he gets to spin it however he wants. But he also knows that Errol Morse is not going to let him slide on everything. It's just fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, I couple things I want to say. I absolutely adore this movie. It was my favorite movie of 2013. And to, like to Jordan's point, if you've never seen an Errol Morris movie, go find one. He's one of the, I think, one of the great unsung American directors or great unsung directors, period. There's an important lesson in this movie, and it's that we don't really know these men and women in higher office. And we sling mud and vilify them because we're so certain they're evil and horrible, and we don't really understand the field they play on. And I, I'm not saying that it's not valid to criticize a politician. You certainly can. It's your it's your responsibility as a citizen to do that, I think. But Errol Morris seems to be trying to peel back the easy dismissiveness we hurl at political figures and say, no, wait, it's not that simple. We don't know this man or woman, so let's actually analyze this and consider the possibility that we can't understand the inner workings of this world or what people who live in it have to go through. You know, if you hate Barack Obama, 
Obama or George W. Bush, my guess is that if you sat down with each one of them for an hour and asked them the tough questions, yeah. you would come away really liking both of them, regardless yeah. of what yeah. your politics are. And that's so what too. this movie got across to me. Well, that uh, seems like a running theme through all the movies we've talked about so far is taking figures that it's so easy to sit back and judge from your couch while they're busy doing their thing, but really humanizing them mm-hmm. and making them either taking the heroes and making them human or taking the villains and making them human. And that's something that movies do so well, whether it's a documentary or a, a narrative film of putting you in the shoes of somebody else. It, it maybe does it better than any other kind of art form that I think we've seen just by talking about the, the few movies we talked about so far yeah. today. Uh, one other point I want to make here. I, I love film scores. This is one of the best scores in the uh-huh. past 20 years. Yeah, it's, um, it's awesome. I, the last screenplay I wrote, I wrote just listening to the soundtrack of this movie over and over and over again. It's so good and powerful, and it just works so well with this movie. I, I think another added layer of this movie that makes it so intriguing is Rumsfeld was only an elected official at the very beginning of his career when he was in Congress. He worked under Nixon. He worked under Ford. He worked under George W., which is interesting because George H.W. Bush uh, did not like Rumsfeld at all. Mm-hmm. Rumsfeld almost was vice presidential candidate, but it didn't work out. He's like, I don't care for that Rumsfeld fella. Was that your George? George H.W. H- yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like either of them. No. So. <laughs> if, maybe if you said something about him not being prudent, that would have helped. I've never heard of George Bush impression that doesn't include the word prudent. Gibby, your number two. All right. My number two pick is the 2012 thriller action political film Zero Dark Thirty, directed by the fantastic Catherine Bigelow, whose previous film was also incredible, Hurt Locker. It's the story of one CIA analyst and her all-consuming quest to take down Osama bin Laden. The film set over about a six- to seven-year period from the early 2000s to when bin Laden was killed in whatever year he was killed in. I think it was 2010. But uh, I just really like this movie a lot. It's tense the whole two-and-a-half-hour running time. And, you know, some people are going to say, well, this isn't a political movie. And I would argue that it's actually three movies in one. The first 30 to 45 minutes are about interrogation and getting information, and then it's kind of a psychological thriller. And uh, the middle part's the real political part. It's where Jessica Chastain, who's the main character, the main CIA analyst, is just trying to get favors and uh, politicians to give her money and time and people to go find bin Laden. And then the incredible last 30 to 45 minutes are pretty much an adventure movie uh, with the Navy SEAL 6 team taking down bin Laden. Yeah, this movie is uh, one that I did see in the theater and I loved it, but I would never watch it again. Most notably for the, you know, kind of extreme torture scene. God, you're such a little It bitch. got some, <laughs> some backlash for as being did. a potential I mean, there was a lot of backlash uh, when it came out. In potential pro torture movie, although I wouldn't describe it that way because yeah. it kind of shows the, the horror. All the same people that watched every season of 24. Yeah. Wait, yeah. people thought it was pro torture? Oh, yeah. Right, because, I mean, torture led to us capturing bin Laden is what the movie seems to imply. Oh, got it. Yeah, but I mean, the torture scenes in it are very difficult to watch. It's yeah, I, mean, I, guess I don't think in any way it's like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, well, I guess that's that's what seemed odd to me. It, like, I didn't feel like it was glamorizing torture, but I see the point you're right. making. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is one of the few movies I've ever seen that I would describe as cathartic for me. Um, and, you know, if, if you live through 9-11, you, I think most Americans had this thing where they felt kind of personally violated by this man who then went unpunished year after year after year. You know, even though time had passed, he was this ghost who was sort of on the subconscious mind of America who had committed this crime against us that had not been brought to justice. And, uh, you know, I think when he was killed, the fact we knew he was not going to hurt anyone was kind of this first step of closure. But I think we still didn't really know what had happened. And for years, we wondered who was working on this problem. And, and it was very satisfying to me to finally see that story told. How factual? 
factual, is it? Very, very factual. Yeah, really? yeah. The, yeah. the screenwriter, uh, Mark Bowl, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Who was later season two of Serial. Okay. He's the guy that she interviews yeah, yeah. on there. He's a heavy, I think he comes out of the um, journalism world. And so he, for these films that he writes, he goes in and he interviews and he's on top of it. Wow. Very solid stuff. Yeah, and Jessica Chastain spent a whole lot of time with this character that she ended up playing. I think cool. there's rumors that it's kind of a, a monoglam. Anaglam? Anaglam? I don't know. Combination. Analgum? Analgum. Analgum of a couple of Amalgam? Yeah, a couple of different people. But she spent a lot of time with her. And I mean, this person that she plays in the movie, it's a fictional name in the movie because the CIA agent that actually, you know, she portrays in the movie just doesn't want to be known. Unknown known. Yeah, it's kind of an unknown known. If you will. How many scenes does it have with Obama hanging out with Osama? (laughs) Just a couple. They don't don't overdo it. Yeah, they're just playing ping pong in one scene. (laughs) The most interesting thing about this movie to me was, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating kind of realistic portrait, but also of the main character, Jessica Chastain's character. It's kind of a study of what it's like to want something for years and years and then to achieve it and being left with whatever that is. Yeah. And the, it doesn't really give an answer for that, but the kind of ending in the movie is her on a Spoiler. like hanger by herself. Uh, the pilot asking her where she wants to go. She's, she doesn't reply and she sits there and kind of cries. And yeah. Like it's this, she's achieved this thing that she's always wanted and it's basically not save the world, but a thing that affects the whole country in a way. From what I got from it is she feels kind of empty inside. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you know, I, and I just talked about closure and I will backtrack on that a little bit. In a way, you can't ever have closure on something like right. this. And that seems to be what she experiences. She seems to represent the national consciousness here Absolutely. where it's like, we got him. Now what? Now what? You know, uh, you know that's not going to bring three thousand people back. We got this guy. That's great. We stop him from doing more evil, but it's not like we stop terrorism. They don't, right? They don't end it with an ISIS cliffhanger. No, there's no. Yeah, I mean, like there's a, no. Like there's a hand no, comes out of the rubble of. Because <laughs> that's how Michael towers. Bay would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else is fascinating about this movie is they were in the process of filming it and writing it when he was dead. I mean, I've when heard he was that, killed. and I was just trying to right. find yeah. something. I mean, on they were really. They, I think they'd actually started filming at that time, and they. They re rewrote the yeah, ending. They ended up rewriting yeah. the whole ending. I mean, the end they were the last, making this movie yeah. before he was dead, just yeah, to be about the search the for him, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah. oh, wait. So, so the potential ending of this movie could have been Bin Laden wins and gets <laughs> yeah. away. I, mean, I think so. It's just like how much it took out of this one particular person. They had already yeah, shot yeah. the Jessica Chastain yeah. scene at the end, and that was that was supposed to be her sad that yeah. they hadn't so, gotten him yet. So, so the end could have been him riding off in the General Lee while the sheriffs <laughs> stand on the other side of the bridge shaking their fists. <laughs> like, Bin Laden. Yeah, that's why they 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 hid all the original scripts because that's exactly how. Wow. <laughs> All right, Lance, your number two. Uh, my number two is the Manchurian Candidate, John Frankenheimer's 1962 political thriller. Follows Love a pl- Denzel in this one. Shut up. This is not nice. This movie follows a platoon of soldiers in the Korean War who are kidnapped and brainwashed by a group of communists then released and sent home. Uh, the story specifically follows two members of the platoon, Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, the prominent son of a U.S. senator who is being manipulated remotely by the group who brainwashed him as an assassin, and Bennett Marco, played by Frank Sinatra, who is starting to put together that he and his platoon were brainwashed and is trying trying to both prove it and put a stop to it. Any conversation of the Manchurian Candidate usually starts with its distribution because after this movie was um, released, well, first off, it was never really released. It played on TV a couple of times and then the movie quite literally vanished for 24 years. You couldn't see it anywhere and there's a myth that the reason it was pulled from circulation was because the movie was made in 1962. Anybody remember what happened in 1963? JFK. 
There you go. Assassination of JFK. And as this dealt with the assassination plot against a, not a president, but a presidential candidate, people thought that it might be too sensitive. However, that myth is not true. The, the reason is way uh, shallower and sadder than that. Frank Sinatra bought the rights from UA after a dispute with him and quite literally just out of spite set on it for 24 years so no one could see it just so nobody could make money That's off the movie. Crazy. What a jerk. I know, Sinatra. Old blue eyes. So there, there were legends about this movie for years because just nobody could see it. And when it finally came out in, uh, I believe it was the late 80s. People flipped out over it. It was immediately hailed as one of the great American films. You know, to say this about this movie, I didn't find a particular political message here. I, I will, I would agree that it is the greatest political thriller of all time. Agree with who? Agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just a lot of critics call it that. It's on a lot of these types of lists if you if you give weight to those things. But this movie's interesting because it plays more like a Shakespearean tragedy than necessarily a political film. It just happens to have its backdrop against American politics. And it kind of transcends a specific culture and times and deals with universal themes that are really true throughout the ages. Greed, power, family ties. And by family ties, I'm talking about the Michael J. Fox <laughs> sitcom from the 80s. <laughs> the brainwashing scenes are, are, are probably what it's most famous for, and they're so remarkably well done. Oh, they're and, amazing. And what's happening is they have been essentially kind of hypnotized to believe that they are in a tea party. Or is it a tea party? Or it's a book no, club. It's, it's a garden club. In a garden club with a group of elderly women. In reality, what's happening is they are in front of a group of communists who are training them how to kill without remorse and without knowing that they are killing. Mm. So what happens is the camera pans around yeah, it's great and, and it pans around once and we see a bunch of, you know, angry communist looking people. And then it pans back around and we see a bunch of women at a garden club. And there's two different garden scenes, which I, I found really interesting because they show that dream from two perspectives. They show it from Sinatra's perspective and then they show it from another one of the soldiers soldiers who was a black man and so all the women in that garden club were these black women and it was just fascinating to me yeah. how many how many like times they turned around that room and showed different people and would switch like almost mid-line who was saying it it was just absolutely brilliant there's a line at the end of this movie that i've always loved and it's it's just a three-word line and it's always stuck with me and and the end of this movie is very bleak i mean there's not a it's not a hopeful ending it's not a happy ending um so i'm, I'm gonna spoil this a little bit it's when raymond shaw basically realizes his life has completely fallen apart and he's he's talking to bennett marco and he gives a quick monologue and then he just has nothing else to say and he looks up and he goes shoots himself. And I absolutely love that line. It's, it's a screenwriter who didn't feel the need to give this long 10 minute dialogue about what had gone wrong. Just in three words, oh God, Ben, he says it all. And it's fantastic. Uh, I'm looking at the poster for this movie that is on Wikipedia and it says, if you come in five minutes after this picture begins, you won't know what it's all about. What a which is really, line. <laughs> yeah. which is which is really true of a lot of movies. Yeah, I guess I guess the filmmakers were very concerned with punctuality. Well, I think that was uh, that was kind of a thing because I remember the Psycho poster or no Psycho, they wouldn't allow anyone to come in late, right? Right. right. Yeah. Right. Well, it must have been a big problem back then. What's funny about this for Manchurian Canada is that I felt like I didn't understand what was going on in the first five <laughs> Yeah, he's very good. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I might, didn't know until later. Yeah, you might be better off skipping the first five minutes. <laughs> this movie, actually. Really doesn't make sense. No, no, it, I, it, it is confusing that the brainwashing scenes are extremely confusing when you're first watching because you're like, why are there communists? There's yeah. different people in the room every time the camera and you, then, you, then you, you, but, but again, that's great filmmaking because they, they give you just enough to let you figure it out. Yeah instead of spoon-feeding everything to you. It doesn't feel like other movies of the era because there is a lot of kind of tricks and, you know, cool shots, and it's very, it is confusing. But I, I really like this film. I think it's a good choice. This movie wrote a line for me of like almost B movie because of, mainly because of the content because it felt like Twilight Zone, but it was done so well 
that it's not it's it's B movie content in an A movie presentation and it, it works so well. Also Jordan Jordan in his movie diary for this movie has written holy cannoli what an ending. <laughs> yeah, this movie has an amazing ending. Really? Oh, I yeah. I try to stray from too much profanity in my movie journal because I <laughs> because I, I feel like one edited part of your life. Well, first off, first off, I love that you have a movie journal. Period. That's great. Yeah. How long did it take you to figure out find a word that rhymed with holy? Were you like, uh, oh, no time at all? Yeah. Holy, holy. Because no. he was eating a cannoli at the time. Yeah. Hey, yeah. this. Wait, I've got it. I, they they might get published someday. You know, I just want them to, want them to be leave interesting. a legacy for your children. Okay, my number two. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. The 2005 film V for Vendetta, based on the graphic novel of the same name by writer Alan Moore and illustrator David Lloyd. The film was written and produced by the Wachowskis, um, who also shot Second Unit on this film. The very impressive directorial debut of their longtime AD, James Mateague. V for Vendetta takes place in a future society where war and disease are rampant, and the UK is now a fascist police state uh, who gathers up undesirables to put into concentration camps and outlaws art that doesn't fit their views. A vigilante known Vigilante? Vigilante. Nope. <laughs> Vigilante. A vigilante known as V, uh, who wears a Guy Fox mask, interrupts a TV broadcast following for all the people in the country to meet him one year from today on the 5th of November in front of Parliament and rise up against the government. Our intro to this character in his world is through Evie, played by Natalie Bortman, who can't quite decide if he's a hero or a terrorist. It's a fascinating movie with really cool action scenes, great twists and turns, and a real depth to it that you don't normally get in these types of movies, um, which I think is kind of a Wachowski's thing. You know, they make popular films, but really make them a lot deeper and actually have interesting questions and things to say about the world. But one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this film on this episode is because of its lasting legacy. The guy Fox Mask, as it's designed in the comic book and made real here, has become a well-known symbol for individualist movements across the world, including the hacktivist group Anonymous and the Occupy movement. Growing up in the U.S., I wasn't aware of the Guy Fox story, so I figured we'd do a little history lesson here. Nice. Don't worry, it's short. It's a trivia, Lance. <laughs> Lance, it's a trivia. It's a trap. <laughs> Guy Fawkes was part of a failed attempt to assassinate King James and blow up the House of Lords on November 5th, 1605, now known as the Gunpowder Plot. King Fa James as in King James Version? King James, you know, that's a good question. He was like, I looked him up, King James the First, but also King James the Sixth. King James the First of England, King James the Sixth of Scotland, but he's the same person. I don't really know. So he was his own great, works. great, great, great grandfather? <laughs> I don't know how it works. Apologies to all you uh, British listeners who and know what we're talking. You about. You guys understand the, the solution of this is quite simple, right? He was look it up in in one nation. He was their second king, and one he was there. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody's clear on that. You guys seem really perplexed well, by I this mean, idea. It's just a, Wait, it's yeah, the same guy. It's, it's way no, more what? fun to think of him being his great great great, great <laughs> grandfather. Both equally realistic. <laughs> Fox was in charge of the explosives when they were trying to blow it up, but was arrested and sentenced to death when found guarding the gunpowder the night before. The survival of the king was celebrated in the following years on November 5th as Guy Fox Night or Bonfire Night, where they would burn effigies of Fox, and this is where the mask got its start. Fox himself has gone over the years from being a villain to a hero, and I believe that they were attempting to assassinate the king for religious reasons. They were Catholic, the king was Protestant, and there was a big 
you know, back and forth at the time there. If they had assassinated the king, his daughter would become queen, and she was a Catholic queen. I'm not sure how all that worked, but this is the kind of cliff notes of it. Cliff's notes. During the planning stages for V for Vendetta, the comic book, the graphic novel, David Lloyd, the illustrator, wrote a note to Alan Moore, the author, which read, Why don't we portray him as a resurrected Guy Fox, complete with one of those paper mache masks and a cape and conical hat? He'd look really bizarre and it would give Guy Fox the image he's deserved all these years. We wouldn't burn the chap every November 5th, but celebrate his attempt to blow up Parliament. And Alan Moore has said of the movement, now that it's become a thing, he says, I suppose when I was writing V for Vendetta, I would, in my secret heart of hearts, have thought, wouldn't it be great if these ideas actually made an impact? So when you start to see that idle fantasy intrude on the regular world, it's peculiar. It feels like a character I created 30 years ago has some... It feels like a character I created 30 years ago has somehow escaped the realm of fiction. Was he related to Michael J. Fox? (laughs) (laughs) Yes or no? Great, great Need an answer. Yeah. He was Michael J. Fox the first and also the sixth. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Moore is funny to me, though. If you ever get a chance to read about him, he is hilarious because he is the most constantly pissed off, unsatisfiable human being on the planet. Every time one of his properties gets made into a movie, he's just livid about it. Takes his name off. He Takes his name off. In this situation, he actually ended his relationship with the DC Comics because they wouldn't retract a statement saying that he had endorsed the film, which he didn't. And his quote was, the comic book had been about things like fascism and anarchy. Those words appear nowhere in the film. Uh, (laughs) What? I I don't know if they do or not, but it's clearly about fascism and anarchy. And then he says, it's been turned into a Bush era parable by people too timid to set a political satire in their own country. I don't even know what he's mad about in that <laughs> quote, but it's hilarious. <laughs> but this guy, I mean, like, if somebody came to me and said, I want to turn something you wrote into a movie, I would be thrilled. Yeah. Alan Moore is furious that yeah. you want to turn anything he wrote into a movie or that you love it enough to well, want to spread it. he kind of famously believes that, like, one art form is one art form and shouldn't be adapted to another. And well, I can I can well, understand that. That keeps blowing up in his face, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, he doesn't own the rights to any of his books. So. He's probably angry that they have holidays in England about failed assassinations attempt. We don't have John Hinckley Jr. Day here in America. (laughs) America rules. (laughs) Okay, Jordan, you're number one. All the President's Men from 1976. Yeah. So many President's Men. All of them. Every last one of them. Directed by Alan Pakula, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, and Robert Redford also uh, produced it. The movie is based on the book by Hungry Junior reporters Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, telling their account of covering and ultimately uncovering the Watergate scandal in the early 1970s that led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Much like Lance's JFK pick, the audience gets to feel like they are part of the investigation in this one. I love this so this movie so much. I watch it a lot, probably at least once a year. To me, it's the ultimate political movie because it plays out like politics. It's exciting and enthralling and confusing and complicated and scandalous and idealistic. And it does all that without any action scenes, without gunfights, without car chases, anything like that, which I feel like a lot of political movies end up in their third act relying on some sort of action sequence or something. And and this one is just all about the politics and the investigation. And uh, there's also, there's no, like there's no distraction from that in this movie. There's no love story. There's no goofy comic relief. It's just these two reporters, their editors and the story. And somehow it's so exciting 
beginning to end. They shot the movie in a number of the exact locations where the story happened. So like the same courtroom in the beginning. And they, they were originally shooting in the Washington Post newsroom. And it, it was just so distracting for the people who actually work there. <laughs> it's not going to work. So they completely rebuilt the set down to replicating every trash can and every single thing. They wanted it to Jeez. be exactly the same. And they didn't, it, this wasn't a big budget movie. But they, they really wanted to be authentic. I have to admit that I don't always understand exactly what's going on in this movie. There's so many names flying around and allegations flying around. that, And I wasn't born yet when all this happens. But the real power in this movie to me is the storytelling. Just the way that it unfolds. The way that you feel like you're on the edge of it with them. This movie to me demonstrates. It's a wonderful movie. Great choice, by the way. Um, hey, thank it's, you. Uh, do you guys like it when I validate all your choices? Like, <laughs> it makes like me I feel decree funny. You haven't validated Olympus. any of mine. so good. Well, there <laughs> might be a reason for that. But... It feels like an adventure movie to me. Yeah. It's so much fun watching these two connect the dots and you you feel like you kind of become part of their team and are helping them put the puzzle together. And that's what makes it so much fun. And this movie, it demonstrates a couple of things that movies do. One, just taking you on this journey. In the journey being, you start with nothing. Uh, there were, were a few guys broken to a room. It's not that big a deal. There's going to be a small court case. Right. And it ends with them bringing down the president of the United States. And all done in a very realistic way because it all really happened. But it also, what it does is movies have a way to take you into these subcultures. And I did leave this movie wanting to be a reporter. Like, I, what a fat... And obviously being a reporter is not that fascinating or interesting. This is one of the great reporting stories of all time. But yeah. but it takes you into that world and it, it does make you want to not leave that subculture when the movie's done. And it mm -hmm. makes you actually question your own career path. Like, man, should I become a journalist? <laughs> sounds awesome. This movie, it, there's a struggle here where it plays into both the pessimism and optimism of American culture. And the pessimism is that it's dealing with corruption. But it also says we live in a society where two lowly reporters can bring down a president using just truth as their only weapon. So there's a positive and a negative that are going on in this movie that are so interesting to watch the struggle between. It does speak to a higher truth that, that I think is very optimistic and does say something very positive. Yeah, I, I think it's the only, unless I'm missing something or not remembering a, a film, of the of the like serious political films that I've seen, it's the only one I can think of that actually is positive at the end, that makes you feel hopeful, that makes you feel like there is a check a and a balance for all the corruption that we see in JFK and, yep. and all these other movies. And it, it really gives me hope. Then you remember that it's the media and that it's maybe... Maybe not. It's hard to be as hopeful as you feel when, when that movie ends. But it's nice to feel a little positivity at the end of a political movie. Also, a little known fact, Carl Bernstein went on to write and illustrate the popular children's book series, The Bernstein Bears. No, nope, that was Berenstain, <laughs> not Bernstein. We're going to get all up in that controversy now. <laughs> yeah. It's a hot topic these days. <laughs> get a lot so of he went, he went from thing. uncovering political truths to uncovering the realities of what it's like to be a family of bears. <laughs> I don't think that was true. Yeah, I remember you didn't remember the Bernstein Bears battle Nixon? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gibby, you're number one. All right, my pick is not straying from the decade, which Jordan just picked. It's the 70s, a 1972 satirical comedy called The Candidate, starring a even younger Robert Redford than he was in 1976. He got younger? Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> this was 1972, right? Because right, it was four years earlier. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so he was younger. Yeah, he was younger. That's how time works. We're all caught up. Now. Yeah, we're all caught up. Anyway, this film's about the politics. Boom, I use the title in my thing of a senatorial <laughs> campaign. <laughs> wow. 
top topical topic <laughs> yeah, usage topical there. Topic usage here. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I had never actually seen this movie until about a week and a half ago when I was looking up political films and saw this wow. near the top of many, many lists that I've seen of very good political films. And it's good. This is a really funny movie. I enjoyed it. It's basically Gibby calls it good. <laughs> <laughs> Number one pick. It's no. good. <laughs> Gibby calls it watchable. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the movie follows a young candidate uh, who has basically coaxed into joining a hopeless campaign into being running against a longtime senator in California. He's got no chance of winning. They just wanted a pretty face to put out in front of the, it the is crowd. Pretty. And it, it is, is I mean, Robert Redford is a gorgeous man in the 70s. Hey, even now, don't be ageist. Yeah, I'm little ageist. But the film follows just his campaign from being initially gorgeous, deciding to do it. Yeah. yeah, from being gorgeous to even more gorgeous at the end when he cuts <laughs> his hair a little bit. <laughs> Uh, in the film, I mean, really, Redford's probably the main character, but there's another main character that it follows as well, and it actually starts in this guy. It's played by Peter Boyle. He's the campaign manager. And uh, if you don't know... Raymond's dad? Yeah, yeah, Ray's dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. And Mm. it's kind of funny to see him like like, with dark hair and, you know, younger. With hair. Yeah, with hair. hair, Yeah, with hair, period. He's he's phenomenal in this movie. I mean, I think he's a co-lead along with Redford. Uh, But, I mean, this film surprised me just at how really many of the issues they were talking about in the 70s they still talk about in 2016 starts out as kind of a he seems just like a pretty face there's not a lot behind it then as really it goes, beautiful was the word you used yeah gorgeous. he seems like a gorgeous face and there's not a lot behind it but as the film goes we're along talking about peter boyle right yeah peter boyle. <laughs> i would argue that this movie has one of the greatest posters it does of have all a great time poster mm-hmm. Which we'll now show you on the podcast. Yep. <laughs> Take a look. <laughs> no, this movie is is interesting because it answers an important question that, you know, as, as we're recording this, we're a couple of weeks away from an election. And it's a question that comes up in every election, which is, how is it out of 300 plus million people, we can't ever seem to find anybody everyone likes to run for president? And the answer that it gives is a bleak one. And it's that it's not that good people aren't out there or that they're not running for office. It's that the process of getting elected takes otherwise good people and turns them into people you don't want to vote for. Mm. You know, Redford starts idealistic and he's us looking from the outside in. He doesn't even want to run at first because he has the same opinion we have about candidates. And what this does is it shows that metamorphosis he goes through from somebody who was idealistic to somebody who's had to give up a lot of his ideals to to run for office. My favorite moment in this movie is the very, very end. Um, so spoiler alert, he, he's won, he, he's won the election. He's beaten the incumbent. Nobody ever thought he could do it. And he's the only person not celebrating. In fact, he looks horrified that he's just won. And he pulls his campaign manager, Peter Boyle into a room and he looks at him and he says, what do we do now? As he says it before Peter Boyle can answer throngs of supporters rush in, pull them out of the room. And the last shot is just of the empty room, which to me, the representation there is just, we're almost looking at the inside of a Robert Redford's soul now where there's just, there's nothing left. He doesn't know what to do. He's confused. We're inside his head where it's just emptiness because it, this process has just completely gutted him and now he's asking the question what am i supposed to do now but anyway great movie great pick and lance makes it i mean you may sound like it's kind of a downer but it's not this movie's really funny there's times that i laughed out loud or lulled if you will or i will not would you say there was a lull in the story <laughs> there was no lull in the story okay. i thought it moved pretty well all right lance you're number one my number one is mr smith goes to washington frank capra's 1939 film follows the story of jeff smith played by jimmy stewart an idealistic young man who was appointed by the governor of a state to fill a vacancy in the u.s senate once he arrives he learns the truth about what a dirty business politics can be but opts to stand up and fight corruption rather than back down and give up his ideals I'm getting a little personal here for a second. So there was a time in my life where I was very political and very 
had very strong opinions and would debate and member of political organizations and all of that stuff. That was before I had 30 milligrams of Lexapro and 10 milligrams of Seroquel <laughs> coursing through my veins. Um, back when I, you know, I deeply cared about our country and the direction. And I'm not saying I don't care about America, but since that chemical lobotomy, my own frustrations with the political process um, kind of made me disconnect from that and become kind of, you know, and I'm not proud of this, but jaded and apathetic to, to politics. But there are certain things that I'll see or do or witness sometimes that kind of reinvigorates that spirit in me. You know, going to Washington, D.C., standing in the Lincoln Memorial, seeing a wounded veteran. Um, and, and to that list, I would add watching this movie. This is a film that, you know, regardless of your political beliefs, whether you're on the right or the left, it represents everything that makes America a great country. And it's one of the great experiences of American cinema. What, what you'll notice, I think, about most political movies is that they a lot of them fall into one of two categories. And I'll call the first one uh, the easy rider category. And this is the category where it's the post-Watergate version of America. Everything sucks. No one can be trusted. And the American dream is kind of dead. And then there's Capra's America. And this is where there's still idealism and hope. And, and neither version of America is completely accurate or in, inaccurate. But what I'll say is that I, I prefer Capra's America, as I think most people do. This is a movie that is completely drenched in idealism. I mean, there's no getting around that. But that's not a bad thing. The scene at the end where Jimmy Stewart filibusters on the floor of the Senate and we're seeing this man put everything on the line because he believes in America so much is one of the great scenes in film history. And that's the scene that always gets me. And I think that is a scene that to me should be shown in every American classroom that every kid should have to see. And, you know, while, while there may be a degree of fantasy in this movie, it's a fantasy that I really want to live in. So this, this is a wonderful film. I wholeheartedly agree with that. A couple of things were really fascinating to me about this movie. One, it's from 1939. And I just found myself shaking my head most of the time going, nothing's changed. <laughs> like this all feels like the that's, same problems. That's that even had. earlier than the candidate in 1972. Good 1939 math. was that's before. Like 33 like years before. Learning a lot. There's also a, a scene near the beginning when Jeff Smith first gets to Washington. He, he disappears from his handlers and goes gets on a tour bus and goes around and sees Washington. He's, he's like a little kid in a candy yeah. store when he gets to Washington, yeah. which, which to be honest with you, that's kind of how I am when I go to Washington. Sure, yeah. I turn into little Johnny Patriot yeah. and start running around that's all the monuments That's the scene the I most remember from this movie, and I've always wanted to go through and do like everything that he does because he does it with being so wide-eyed and yeah. being so pure of heart. And it really does make you look at it through that lens because right. we're so used to being jaded and being so, you know, especially in today's time of being constantly bombarded with, you know, Facebook and blogs and the news and all kinds of things that we're so aware of it, of just stripping all that away and seeing through uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Smith's eyes of seeing what politics look like, what yeah. um, the government looks like, what. Uh, the United States looks like in the history of it. He, he definitely takes his time with the film because I've never actually finished it. But man, I was bored. Sounds like you take your time yeah. with the film. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this film this film to me is more like Mr. Boring and some boring Boy Scout. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's karma, Gibby, because you, you didn't like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? How can I, you, didn't, I don't understand. We stopped after like 25 minutes. So hang on. You didn't like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Well, I just was not enthralled by the first 25 minutes of it. I can be honest, I've never heard anybody say they didn't like Mr. Smith no. Goes to Washington. That's, that's interesting. Say so you're off a the really show. Joke there. I yeah. Wow. Can we, do we have somebody in the bullpen we can call in to come in and take his place? My mom, hey, my mom came over to my house while I was watching this the other day, and she was really excited that it was on. She was like, oh, I remember this movie. It's yeah. great. Yeah. The reason I don't think you find many people disliking this film either is that it speaks to something. I mean, you know, again, right now, I could open my Facebook page up right now, and there are people just going at each other's throats about you know, who they're supporting and you know, all this stuff. We, we unfortunately don't get to talk about the things we agree on 
often in this country, which those things, there is a long list of them and people forget that. And one this, of them should be Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That, well, mm-hmm. well, but, but this movie this finds four friends agree about Mr. Smith goes to Washington. F- this movie should find, be. this movie finds a common ground for everyone. And I, this is a movie that you could get a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats and a group of libertarians and a group of green party. Everybody I think would find this to say, that's the America I want. Yeah. And, and that's why I think it has appealed to people so much over the years. Because it, it does seem to hit a target that everybody wishes the country could hit. You just got to get past really obnoxious Boy Scouts at the beginning of the movie. Man, I didn't find I anything obnoxious I, about this movie. A, what, what stuns me, Gibby, is you are you are such a, like, you have such an idealistic tilt in movies. It's This seems like a movie that would be right in your wheelhouse. It probably is. I probably need to just watch more than the first 25 minutes. Of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yep. you really should. <laughs> I own it. And watch yeah. it. You're like, Boy Scouts, what? Turn this off. I'm Turn done. this trash off. Guys, I had a terrible experience as a Boy Scout. <laughs> I was never a Boy Scout. All right. I, I, I was oh, really sorry. surprised, and Lance, I, I kind of wonder what you thought about this, is how violent the end of the movie is. Oh, where they're beating the hell out of the Boy Scouts? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It gets, well, and let me say, this Wait, is a good point. So the Boy Scouts be, get beat up? Yeah, yeah. I'm watching this. Back in. <laughs> back in. It's, it, I talked about how this movie had a lot of idealism in it, and I, I don't want to make it sound overly sanitized because it's not that it avoids corruption. It oh, deals no. with all of that. And, and George, to Jordan's point, not a lot has changed in that regard. I think the idealistic part is the notion that as long as you hold on to the truth long enough, you will beat the bad guys in, in Washington. And that's the part that I think comes across as idealistic. But this movie does not shy away from the problems in Washington at all. And I, I don't want to paint that picture of it. It is, it is very... It would be a boring movie if that was the case. It would. It would. It's not just a guy goes to Washington and loves it and it's great and everybody's happy at the end and sings songs about America. That's not what this movie is. There is deep conflict that still holds true today, mm-hmm. but that conflict is overcome. And I think that's the idealism that, that most people love to see. My number one political film is Team America World Police. America. It's so odd that we're ending with this. I'm going to shake my head the whole time. Michael Shabon, the author, once said that if you want to teach kids a lesson, you should wrap it in the dirtiest joke possible. Well, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are the masters of teaching lessons through dirty jokes. Team America is essentially a spot-on spoof of action films while also being a political satire. Team America is the name of the main organization in the film, an anti-terrorist group who polices the world with heavy weaponry and gadgetry on whose base is inside Mount Rushmore. They go around taking down terrorists, leaving destruction and dead bodies in their wake. The main character in the film is a theater actor named Gary Johnston, (laughs) who is brought in because of his acting abilities in order to infiltrate a terrorist cell. Oh, and it should be noted the entire movie is told with puppets. So Trey and Matt were inspired by the contradiction of the old uh, TV show called The Thunderbirds, which had a serious tone but was told through silly-looking puppets. Trey and Matt originally intended to do a shot-for-shot puppet parody of The Day After Tomorrow after (laughs) getting a hold of that script and thinking it was ridiculous and hilarious. The spoof would have been called The Day After The Day After Tomorrow (laughs) and been a release a day later than The Day After Tomorrow. Parker and Stone were advised by their lawyers that there could be possible legal legal repercussions, (laughs) so they changed their plans. Team America features dozens of real-life celebrities, from Michael Moore to Susan Sarandon, and all of them are horribly slaughtered at some point in the film. Some of the stars were thrilled to be included, like Matt Damon, Alec Baldwin, and George Clooney. Sean Penn, however, was not happy about it. There's a surprise. When is he happy about (laughs) it? And reportedly sent Trey and Matt a strongly worded letter challenging them to tour Iraq with him and ending the letter with, F*** you. (laughs) So hang on, he, he's he he preceded the f- 
you with a with an invitation to come. I, I think <laughs> like, hey, if you guys saw what it was really like, you wouldn't be making fun of this type oh, of thing. Uh, the thing about the politics in this movie is that Trey and Matt make fun of every possible side so equally that it's hard to tell where they land on a given subject. And I think that's the whole point of it, that no side is all bad or all good. The one thing they really rally against the most is self-importance and smugness. Anyone who believes that they are right and everyone else is wrong. When you start to think that your opinion is better or more important than everyone else's, it's probably a good time to step back and reassess. And really, that might be the best lesson any of us could take away, especially during this current election. And Trey and Matt use the dirtiest jokes possible in Team America to get it across. I have a lot of respect for Trey Parker and Matt Stone, irreverent as they are, um, because, I mean, they're essentially, you know, satire is what they're doing. But they, they, they have... They stay true to something that I think is very important in satire, which is looking at it with an unbiased eye and eviscerating everyone. And and I'm going to get in a little trouble here, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think guys like Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert are really funny. But I think if we're all really honest with ourselves, they've lost that. They are very selective in what they choose to satire, and they're clearly grinding a political axe against people that they don't agree with, which well, that's honestly, fine. Honestly, I can't think of one pundit or one anybody in Hollywood at all that does what Trey and Matt do. Well, exactly, and that's what makes them so much more respectable and authentic to me is that they go into it guns a-blazing at everyone. And it's not that I agree with everything they're saying. I agree with half of what they're saying, which tells me they're doing it effectively. <laughs> right. That's what they should be yeah. doing. On top of that, and this is the part that gets missed with this movie, and I'll be honest with you, Hudson, when I saw this on your list, I kind of rolled my eyes at first. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, this movie makes an important political statement. And th this is the aspect of what Trey Parker and Matt Stone do that often gets missed is behind all the mockery and the, you know, crudeness and all of that stuff, they make really good points. And, and the message in this movie seems to be that we all kind of need each other. The left mm -hmm. and the right have important roles to play in a society. You know, and, and, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of the speech. There's a, a yeah, really well, funny speech. I was going to read the whole thing too, but every it's other word so, we'd have to bleep, have out. To bleep yeah. the thing out. But but the point of the, the point of what they're saying is that if people on the left were in charge, we'd be getting our asses kicked all the time. And if people on the right were in charge, we'd be a bunch of bloodthirsty animals with no restraint. So it's like one side protects our way of life, and the other side makes sure our way of life is worth protecting. And there's at a all. balance there, right? And and that's like that. That is, you know, and, and people on the left, if you hear that, you may have just heard me say that and gone, no, that's wrong because right. the people on the other side, well, you're making their point for them. Yeah. That's <laughs> the fact that you don't understand that you kind of need the other side and the other side does have important points to make. That's exactly what Trey Parker and Matt Stone are getting at. It's like what you said. They hate self-importance. And as soon as you disagree with that point, you start to become a little bit self-important. And that's what they're fighting against. Absolutely. It really is a good movie if you can get past it along. Not one for the kids, obviously, but uh, it's a really the, good movie. Or the to get parents, past. really. Or really, yeah, the parents. <laughs> Just the young uh, people. Yeah, you should see what they cut out of this movie. It's, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's chilling yeah well i think they went through they went back to the mpaa i think 12 times on one scene of the movie yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll let you guess what that scene is yeah. it's the puppet sex scene yeah <laughs> oh, we're not gonna let you guess what huh. are you guys excited about uh, i'm excited about the new starbucks that opened up down the street from me that i can wow, walk to congratulations yeah. thank you i'm really excited <laughs> okay, are you actually going to walk to it how often will you no, walk to it? it's a mile away and i'll <laughs> yeah, drive every time do they have good wi-fi <laughs> nope. <laughs> Sounds like a real winner. <laughs> uh, Gibby? I'm excited about the upcoming holiday movie season, y'all. We're going to talk about movies on this movie podcast. What's coming up? There's a lot of good movies coming. I think they're going to be good. This coming Friday is uh, kind of a departure for the Marvel Studios Dr. with Doctor Strange. Strange. Previews make it look pretty interesting, awesome. sort of Inception-like. And America's going to hate it. America's already decided they love it before yep. seeing it. Rogue One looks very yeah, cool. Rogue One. Looks the, fantastic. There's a new Harry Potter film, which I'm kind of unsure of. 
Yeah, they just announced that they're doing five of them total now. The first one hasn't come out yet. They've announced they're doing five. Jordan, what are you excited about? Well, I'm not going to talk about something I'm excited about. I'm going to talk about somebody that I'm excited to have known. A good buddy of mine passed away uh, recently. His name was Damien Schaefer. He's a super curious person. He started this dinner group with some other buddies of ours and basically like learned how to cook awesome stuff because he was curious about it and wanted to... He was just always learning. He was the most enthusiastic person I think I've ever met. It was genuine. So I'm excited about focusing for the next little bit on, on kind of celebrating how awesome he was and, and the impact that he, he's had in my life and a, and a lot of my other friends' lives. So Very sorry for your loss, Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. He, was, he, was, uh, he was one of the best. Kind of makes me think uh, I should rethink my... Yeah, can I change my... I'm, I'm excited yeah, to... Yeah, I'm excited so. to see how Hudson's going to segue into his excitement. Yeah, yeah. we're going to edit this so that one comes last. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm excited about, um, for all you screenwriters out there, it's a website called wordplayer.com. It's been around for a while, so it looks like it was designed in like 1996, but it's by far the best resource for screenwriters out there. Started by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, the screenwriters behind Aladdin, Shrek, and the Pirates franchise. Home to over 50 essays on screenwriting, all completely free and if you're a screenwriter every single essay is a must read especially their last one which is on a concept called time risk which suggests that writers should spend more time making movies and less time trying to get movies made Um, I highly recommend it wordplayer.com click on columns and you'll find them all listed there yeah that that time risk article is amazing and it's not it's not just for writers either any kind of filmmaker or, or even if you're just curious in how Hollywood work and what it looks like from the inside he's got lots of great insider stories yeah let's let's spend time making movies absolutely and not making podcasts <laughs> <laughs> alright well, thanks, thanks for joining guys. us guys we'll see you next week thanks guys thank you hey thanks everybody next week on the four friends fight about film podcast we'll be talking about indecent exposure statutory rape and sex boots that's right folks we'll be discussing our favorite childhood films see you next week but first here's a message from the 42nd president of the united states of america how y'all doing this is president clinton <laughs> check out our community online on facebook.com slash fight about film fight about film on twitter or contact us via email at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com <laughs> Hey, you enjoyed the podcast, leave a review on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. (laughs) 